Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the show that helps you reach your full potential with your host, Lisa Tarmati, brought to you by lisatarmati.com. Hey everyone, Lisa Tarmati here at Pushing the Limits. Fantastic to have you join me again today. Today, it's all about food and nutrition and health uh, with Dr. Mickey Willardin. Now, Dr. Mickey helped me when I was doing bad water back or oh, over a decade ago. Uh, she's a registered nutritionist, has a PhD in it, um, and is a very knowledgeable lady. We have a very great conversation today about what is health and what is healthy nutrition. Uh, we talk a lot about protein. Um, so I hope you enjoy this uh, episode with Dr. Mickey Willardin. Before we head over to the show, just want to remind you to check out our epigenetics program. This is all about understanding your DNA, your genetics, and then optimizing your environment to those genes. So gone are the days where we believe that your genes are deterministic and what you were given, that was it. That's certain. That's, that's true for certain genes like your eye color and your hair color and things like that. But most genes uh, in the genome can be up-regulated or down-regulated or turned on or off, for the want of a better description. And this is where your environment comes into it. And this is where putting the right food, the right type of exercise, the right times of the day, your circadian rhythms, and understanding all this nuance about your genes so that you can optimize your lifestyle to get the most out of your mind and your body so that you can live a long and healthy life. And that's what this podcast is all about. And that's what we're all about. So please check out our epigenetics program. If you're into running, then you may want to also check out Running Hot Coaching or if you want to get started in running and you want a holistic approach that's got a really uh, broad fundamental structure to the training programs that will really help you get the best out of your body. This is about the science of running. It's about understanding the uh, foundations of running, why you need strength training, mobility work, as well as having a personalized run training program specifically for you. Uh, And, you know, if you want to reach big goals, we'd love to help you get there. So check that out at runninghotcoaching.com. And if you're wanting to live a really long and healthy life, then check out our supplements on nmnbio.nz. We have NMN and we have TMG. What are these? These are nicotinamide mononucleotide and trimethylglycine, both long, great for longevity and they work in synergy together. And we're also adding some more supplements as we go along. One of our other great supplements that we've just started working with is Perfect Aminos by Dr. David Minkoff, who was a guest on the show. And uh, that's all about having the perfect protein. Um, and that's what this uh, today's subject is actually all about. So check that out. You can check that out in my shop and lisatarmati.com. Right, over to the show with Dr. Mickey Willardin. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Today, I have Dr. Mickey Willardin with me, a friend from way, way, way back in the day. How are you? Yeah. Well, hey. I'm great. Thanks, Lisa. Um, I always get, um, it's always funny when people refer to me as Dr. Mickey Willardin, because of course I am, I have my PhD, um, but I'm, I've never owned that title. And I put a post on Facebook up a few years ago saying, I just get super uncomfortable when people refer to me as doctor because I view the medical establishment, they're the real doctors. And of course, a lot of academic people I know, like me, who have a PhD, are like, no, totally own it. Yeah, How do we sort of want to? Because, because sometimes, particularly in the space of nutrition and health, the people that get the most traction are actually the ones who call themselves doctors on the basis of their 
doctoral studies rather than their medical sort of um, anything medical. And I'm like, I'm sort of, my voice has lost a bit because it doesn't look as authoritative as, say, some other doctor, Dr. Stacey. It's important that you own that damn title because you do have that authority of having that thing. You know, like I don't have a PhD, been considering going back and doing it at my late old age in life um, (laughs) because I don't get taken seriously enough, even though I know I have the knowledge and I know I've spent years saying, but you don't have that thing, so you should bloody own it and use it (laughs) because it does have an instant rapport with people. People get it and people understand the difference between a PhD doctor and, and and you know what? When it comes to health, Mm. you're the type of doctor I want to talk to. Yeah, it's interesting, Lisa Ray. So, because I think in the nutrition space, because anyone can basically call themselves a nutritionist, you get people who might do an online seminar and then they start teaching sort of nutrition. And however, and then uh, in addition to that, though, so I would say that person is not particularly experienced and may be fine to help guide some people with regards to their eating habits until things go wrong so things are fine until they're not fine and and when they're not fine that's when you do need a little bit more expertise or a lot more expertise however what I'm noticing and and particularly over the last 10 years in the nutrition space is the people that get nutrition and understand pathways and understand how nutrients work in the body they don't tend to be ones who've gone through a nutrition degree per se. They're people who are natural problem solvers. They're critical thinkers. They learn and they learn without the blinkers that are put on through doing a university degree. Like I suffered from that for so many years. I thought I knew it all because I went to Otago. <laughs> and then to just kind of realize that's like that. that's awesome. <laughs> but it's so true. And then realizing that I had new bugger all and actually what I knew didn't really make sense with how the body works I mean look I'm being a little bit I'm exaggerating of course yeah. and and I am so pleased to have have had the sort of science pathway and, and stuff that I have had but I'm very um, aware of the limitations that all of us going through that university system yeah. has because like, we're not free it's thinkers it's, it's, it's like the, it's like having done study to to work out that you you have a super good brain and yes, but and yet you are able and capable of doing it, but it, it has taught you to think in one particular way. Yeah, and, and it has very limited in academia as to what you can and do, and what you can't say, and what you can say, and so you don't get that free thinking, that outside the box type of thinking that I I think I'm really good at. Totally. Um, so it's sometimes uh, what what what's really great is when you then have a doctor who then suddenly starts to realise that that is the limitation of their education, and then goes and starts to do ongoing education totally and there are so many doctors like that as well and I do think that medical doctors get a bad rap sometimes for not having the knowledge in and around nutrition or more specialist sort of health or know much about nutrient medication gene interactions because that is a specialist knowledge and they you know the your usual sort of GP doesn't have the time to go and sort of accrue that they really have to make the time and, and have to sort of yep. believe that it's worth it for them so 
we can't we shouldn't expect to be able to go to our doctor and get them to prescribe information sort of in and around that I think that's when we need the likes of people like you Lisa who've done work in that field and understand it just because you don't have a degree and it doesn't mean that you don't have that level of expertise and knowledge yeah and the actual you know experience and I think you know like we can't expect any one person to know everything about everything because there's just too much out there in the world anyway yeah you know why we have specialties and stuff but it's also just understanding that sometimes you need to connect the dots and you need to be able to go to this person that person and I think the underlying thing that I'm very passionate about is people taking ownership of their health and not outsourcing it to any one doctor or any one person for that matter in fact it should be a team that you have that you build uh, around you wherever possible and of course all this costs money and so on and so forth but a lot of it doesn't because you can learn stuff online and go to the right places mm. uh, and, and and having that ownership over the house and being in that preventative space and understanding the basics of how your biology works and we weren't taught that at school you know we weren't taught anything like you know we were talking prior to recording about menstrual cycles and and stuff or, were you ever taught at school when you got your period what the hell is going on in your body? No, you had no idea. Uh, you know, and, and, and a lot of people now still don't, even in their 50s and 60s, still don't know how their cycle works, you know. Um, yeah. It's a sort of basic human knowledge that we should be teaching our young ladies and our young men how their bodies work, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, also with that as well, like, and, I'm, and I wonder if this is a, a generational thing and if this is changing over time, but in order to be health advocates or advocates for ourselves, we have to appreciate what the doctors are sort of there for. So if I think about my parents, for example, they go to the doctor and they're just, they do what they're told. And that is almost how they, that's how they sort of grew up sort of thinking that that's what you had to do. And so if you go to your doctor and you ask for blood tests and your doctor says no, they're like, oh, okay, well, I can't because my doctor didn't let me. It's like, well, it's actually not your doctor's decision. It's, you know, it's, yes, maybe the public health system is does is not able to fund you that vitamin D test, but if you're happy to pay for it, then you just go and say, I'm happy to pay for this. And I always sort of coach my clients this way as well. I'm like, I, I start by saying, you know, your doctor is going to be thrilled that you are taking ownership of your health and that you want to optimize that. Of course, you're probably going to need to pay for some of these tests, say outright that you're prepared to do it. Of course, if they they are prepared to do it, I'm not going to just suggest that they spend hundreds of dollars that they're not going to value. But for those that want to know, they sort of you almost need that sort of conversation, and you need the tips. You need to know what to say. I will say, my very good friend Lara Bryden, who is a a hormone genius, ah, you wanted to get here on the show. She would be amazing. Yeah, I have connected and then yeah, drop the ball. Yeah. Yeah, by 2022, that's the year. <laughs> um, she, in her new book, the um, Hormone uh, Repair Manual, is that what it, yeah, it is, it's the Hormone Repair Manual, and it's particularly for women over 40. Um, she has little sort of boxes in there which have uh, a script for you to sort of start that conversation with your doctor to have, you know, to talk about the more tricky situations, which you you never sort of thought that you were able to talk about with your doctor. So, you know, she's, um, I've, knowing how to talk to your doctor, I think is super helpful. Yeah. And, and trying to find someone that is open-minded and isn't closed-minded. If you've got one of those that's, that's asking you, what do you want that for? Run yeah. 
the other way. Yeah, totally. <laughs> out of that office run and find one that is open to you having open discussions and questioning things. Yeah, yeah, you know, totally. When I, when I go to a doctor or if I go with my mum or something, like, you know, especially with my mum with her cancer journey, I come prepared for a court case. Yeah, yeah. So in there, I, I know my stuff and I'm ready to fight the battle and sometimes yeah. I have to fight it and sometimes I don't need to. They're already yeah. on. Uh, but many of the times I do have to fight. And so I go in there. I don't go in there unprepared. I go yeah. prepared with all, all my knowledge, my, my, my reading prior, what I'm after, why I'm after it, and, and I hope for the best. And if that doctor says no, I go and find another one. And I tell and- you, that, that's that, that's been really really valuable to totally because that's the thing like if you go to your doctor with a paper that outlines why vitamin d is important for xyz or why it's important to get b12 booster jabs that your b12 level of less than 200 might fall with a normal range that's certainly not normal or optimal you know then then the doctor's going to learn a little bit more too and hopefully you know in any Anyone interested in health is generally interested to sort of upskill their knowledge. And a lot of people feel overwhelmed. But let's dig into the um, weeds a little bit today, Mickey. And so you're very big on protein Mm. um, and and, uh, cutting out the crap in the diet and um, gluten. And we could go in 100 different directions. But let's talk a little bit about protein. Yeah. Protein is one of those things that we've been drilled into us. We need a ton of, you know. Um, and a lot of us have woken up to the fact that excess carbs are at the basis of a lot of problems. Mm. I hope people are waking up to that because that's definitely the case. Yeah. Um, but protein is one of those things that's a double-edged sword. It's a good thing. It repairs your bodies, gives you amino acids. You you know, if you want good hair, good skin, repair every muscles. If you're an athlete, you want to recover. Protein's good for all that. Then you've got the whole other side of the story. If you're having too much protein, all the downsides and what type of protein, um, and then it's upregulating mTOR, which is a mammalian target of rapamycin, which we can, which is one of the pathways in the body that's to do with growth. Mm. And sometimes growth is not a good thing. Um, that's always been a bit of a confusing concept. Uh, that's you know took me a while to get my head around. Can we have a talk about that for a bit? Yeah, so because I, similar to you, Lisa, was quite confused in and around that mTOR signaling pathway because as you as you so rightly said, you know, amino acids, which are the building blocks from protein, they are the signaling molecules to turn that mTOR pathway on. They're not the only thing that does that, but they're certainly a big part of it. And so I always had in my head, well, I know from what I understand of the research, from my discussions with some of the protein experts that you know, we are, most of us don't eat enough protein. You and I might be different because we are sort of, we are across the sort of protein literature and we know how important it is. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of protein myths out there as well. So a lot of people uh, don't consume what they should consume. And we can talk about the reasons why why that is um, after after this. But with with the mTOR pathway, it is something which if it was switched on all of the time, that would be a problem because that would just be signaling growth to the body. And if there's this underlying disease process like cancer, clearly that's not something that um, is going to help um, anyone in their um, fight against cancer. As I understand it, though, you have different receptors in different tissues and the um, protein 
as a, you know, healthy individual eating protein, you don't have to worry about that mTOR signaling pathway. And in fact, one of the things which is more important, as you mentioned sort of at the start of the discussion, is that um, carbohydrate intake, insulin levels are much more uh, sort of problematic in terms of the growth yeah. of uh, gr- uh, signaling growth in the body than uh, protein per se. So mTOR receptors on muscles that n- require amino acids, they're switched on when you have amino acids, but it's not like that keeps them switched on and they don't have the ability to switch off. So as I understand it, the problem lies more with insulin is not a concern for um, healthy individuals and isn't a reason to keep a low protein load uh, for most people most of the time. Yes, this is a really, because, you know, like dealing with, uh, you know, mum with cancer, we've yeah. definitely wanted to to inhibit the mental pathway because you want yeah. to inhibit growth. So we've, you know, we're doing things uh, and, and upregulate the AMP kinase pathway, which yes. is a pathway that is actually, uh, so like things like metformin, which is a diabetes drug, which they use in off-label use for cancer, mm. uh, which blocks uh, the, the glycolysis um, pathway. Yep. Yep. Pathway, um, and that that makes the body produce less insulin. Yeah, get less sugar into the cells. So you're, yes. you're uh, which is which is a good thing. Um, but on the other hand, I, like for the first few weeks of her cancer diagnosis, when I didn't know what type of cancers, we didn't have the full diagnosis, etc. Um, etc. Et I was went just on vegetables. You know, yeah. like not any protein either, because proteins can certain proteins can feed certain cancers, right? So yeah. What I was dealing with, you're on a, you know, vegetable only basically diet. Yeah. Um, and that was the right decision at that point. Yeah. However, after a period of time, of course, that starts to deplete your albumin levels, which mm. are really, really important for transporting all your nutrients. And yeah. It's one of the most predictive uh, elements for longevity. Like if your albumin levels are really low, then you're not probably going to be on the earth very long. Yeah. Um, and so you don't want to get your body into that sort of a state and your protein, your total protein levels also. So those were starting to dip, even though, yes, we were cutting the food supply off to the cancer. And this is the tricky thing with cancer where you're trying to starve the cancer but not starve the person. So bloody hard, isn't it? Like, and, and also, as I understand it, like different tumours, they can change across the course of the time as well. So, um, you know, you can starve it of glucose and then it gets pretty savvy and it starts using ketones as a fuel source or it starts using the amino acids as a fuel ketones, source. Ketones are the one thing it can't use. And this is why mm. exogenous ketones in the keto diet are so good. Mm. There are a couple of uh, cancers, I believe, prostate cancer being one. I've got the other one that don't really respond super well to the keto diet, but for melanoma, my, I think melanoma. That's the one. Yeah. Um, but all the others, you know, the the ketones provide your, especially like in case of mum who's got brain injury after brain yes. injury, brain tumor. We need good food for the brain that doesn't yeah. produce tumors, and ketones and exogenous ketones in the ketone diet are very very important piece of that puzzle for her. So it's finding food sources that don't do it and then blocking them yeah. uh, in different pathways. And you're right, cancer is like a shape shifting beast. That yeah. it, you could be winning. And this is why with chemo often it's the case. Yes, you 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 get the tumors into you know starting to regress and to shrink, 
But then the cancer goes, it's taken a hit, but then it goes, huh, strategically, I'm going to go around this way and I'm going to start using the fatty acid synthesis pathway or the macroponocytosis pathway if you're an autophagy yeah. or whatever the case may be, and it changes and then it gets ahead again. So mm. this is why, yeah, it's a, it's a very tricky beast to stay on top of um, and why you sometimes have temporary relief from certain things, but then you've got to actually keep ahead of it and keep trying to block the pathways. And, and that's what I've been, you know, studying and trying to work out for mum's particular type of cancer and where we're at and its progression and so on and so forth. And, so, you know, touch wood, we're bloody doing a brilliant job. So, so far the tumours are gone. So, um, yeah, we just got to hit the code that they keep staying. Bloody gone. hell, it sounds exhausting and, and yeah. bloody complex as well. Like, and I think that's the, that's the, to me, that's the sort of scary thing about cancer, you know, yeah. is that, um, it, it, you know, anyone can be affected Yeah, it, sometimes. And it feels like you get ahead in terms of, um, you know, different treatments, different protocols sort of coming out. Um, but then, you know, Everything is every cancer is so different. It's like a completely different disease. Yeah, and one, is different. Yeah, it's it's totally right. <laughs> totally. And in fact, one of the um, I was listening to a podcast. Um, we were talking about him before we came on air. Peter Tears podcast, yeah. talking about cancer, and they were talking about you know the 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 key really is early early detection, and that's the thing because if it's you detect it early enough, then you've just got a better chance of fighting it. And but and that's the problem is that some of our tests aren't particularly sensitive, like the PSA test for prostate cancer is like, you know, not sensitive. Like mammograms aren't particularly, you know, sensitive. You couldn't find it until you had an MRI. So you don't get it. Like there is no blood. Yeah. Even now, I cannot account measure how successful we are on a week to week basis because there is no blood test. Yeah, the central nervous system. We can't see into there. The only thing we yeah. can do is an MRI. And of course, you can only get those every few months if you're lucky. Yeah. Um, right. So you're playing a guessing game with this thing. But yeah. I think um, like we have made huge strides in the metabolic side of cancer and getting all, um, not just focusing on the genetic and the somatic mutation theory but yeah. also going into the whole metabolic side of things, which I think is where a big, you know, big successes are coming from. Um, yeah. I'm getting to um, interview some really top thought leaders in this space and scientists and doctors in this space, so that's been really, really exciting. Yeah, but, totally. You know, but for the average person, and I think, yeah. you know, like oh, just before we leave the cancer story, like one in, I think one in six of us is going to get cancer in our lifetime, mm. but it is an age of, uh, it's a disease of aging mostly with children yeah. who get it and there is, you know, reasons. But um, it, it is the more metabolic dysregulation we have, yeah. the more things we have. It's like a, it, it is a gateway for cancer. Totally. If you have inflammation in the body ongoing, and that will lead to cardiovascular disease, diabetes, dementias, and yeah. cancers. So they're yeah. all the big killers. Yeah. And what is at the root of this is a process of, of inflammation and a lack of autophagy, which is the, you know, getting yeah. rid of the senescent cells and the, the cells that are damaged, which is a process we can talk about as well if you can. Um, and and if we can if we can keep on top of the inflammation in our body. We're going to keep on top of a hell of a lot of things and, you know, give us a good chance of not developing those things. It's not just genetic. And do you know what? The the thing that sort of gets me in this space, Lisa, is that people think that what you've just described, that that is something that requires 
super extreme uh, protocols in order to dampen down inflammation and and make sure that you know we can upregulate autophagy and and the rest of it. And therefore, because they come, they go to the internet and they come across OMAD one meal a day or yeah. prolonged five day water fasts every quarter or um, uh, extreme diets like that. And I say extreme because for the, and most people, they are com- they're completely extreme and actually completely unnecessary to my mind. And we may yeah. differ on this, but for your general person who is dealing with a bit of with a bit of if there is such a thing it yeah. is dealing with metabolic dysregulation you've yeah. got to get your blood sugars in check Absolutely. and that blood sugar in check means that you know once you do that actually a lot of other things good things follow on from that even if you're not really sort of focusing on them so that's why I'm such a big fan of protein because people eat more when they have a low protein diet and they eat more carbs. This is what the research tells us, but, but you don't have to use research. You just sort of intuitively know if you're propping up your energy because you're trying to avoid a, a rescue your blood sugars on an hour by hour basis, the thing that your body wants is carbs. And that's actually the last thing that it needs. This is, that's gold. And I think you're right. Like it, it, I think there's a place for the more extreme stuff. And if you yep. are facing a cancer diagnosis and you're not underweight and cachexic yet, then yep. a fast is probably your best thing that you can do right now. You know, 100%. A short, a short fast or even a longer fast under the guidance of a doctor. Yeah. However, for the average person who's still healthy and for people like you and me, I mean, I do intermittent fasting. Yeah. Um, I don't do the long fasting. Partly because I'm just too lazy to do it and mm. because I love my food yeah. um, and I don't have any particularly huge need for it. But yeah. I am on top of my inflammation. And as soon as I feel like, oh, I've been a bit bad lately, then I'll pull back and, and you know, and I, and I do do bad things on occasion, you know. I do, yeah. kind of, you know, uh, and I think that's okay. I, I mean, if you like mum with her, with her cancer, she doesn't get any treats. <laughs> so I'll be mm. honest. There is no treats because, I mean, they gave her two or three months to live. So, you know, like I'm going hard out. And it's not a treat to shorten your life anymore. Yeah, We shouldn't call it treats. You're damn right there, actually. Mm. Get this mentality because that's how we grew up, right? Yeah, yeah. We're a good girl. You've got some lollies or you've got a pudding or you've got a – and I think training a kid's not like that. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And you know what as well, Lisa, and this is where I sort of – uh, push back a little bit with my with the the fasting um, sort of narrative. Like I am absolutely a fan of therapeutic fasting, and if someone is overweight, they have um, gut related issues, or they or maybe cognitive issues, or something like this, and they're not at risk of losing muscle mass. Yeah. Then fasting absolutely um, can be an important sort of part of the therapy. But if we're thinking about, even if I'm just thinking about you and I, we're both lean, we both need to build muscle and try and hold on to that for the rest of our lives. Three-day prolonged fast is going to do the exact opposite of what we want. And so exercise and fasting both bring with them a lot of the same benefits because they're both a stress on the body and they both upregulate pathways that help with um, our own endogenous antioxidant system, anti-inflammatory systems, um, the the AMPK signaling and, and everything around that i've got i can see this chart in my brain um with all of the you know pathways that are affected that are affected by both fasting and exercise but then when you lay a stress on stress on stress 
your body breaks down and yes. we know that to be true. Yeah. Yeah. And this so, is especially true for long exercise as well. Absolutely. You know, you know coming from an ultra marathon background, I'm not actually like for health, for, yeah. for the mental toughness, for the sporting endeavor, for the goals and the bloody, you know, adventure. Yes. Yeah. For health? No. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's almost the opposite of of health. But people like you and I love it. I've not done the ultras the way you have, although I did just do the Kepler a couple of weeks wow. ago. Awesome. Yeah, and Tarawera has actually been um, yeah. planned, I believe. But okay. um, you know, so I'm sort of I'm in it for for uh, I'm, I'm similar to you, but n- nowhere near is is amazing. Um, but <laughs> but often people, but people who like do you know, do that kind of thing, they're often interested in health, and this is one of the reasons why they get into it. So yeah. they then they start doing prolonged fasting in addition to long runs and and things like that, and then things go seriously south. Because what I was going to say with all of the pathways that are turned on by fasting and exercise, there needs to be that period of rest and recovery and feeding to help support those benefits. Like you can't just do all the fasting without the recovery, which I feel like a lot of people don't quite have the right mix, or at least the people that I see on a yep. day-to-day basis in my clinic. And I think, you know, what? what's beautiful about that conversation is cycling in and out of. Mm. I love I love cycling and in, in having periods uh, of of where I'm going hard out muscle building and I'm in a growth phase. Yeah. And I'll, you know, spend time and I'll have more uh, protein in that time and I'll have, you know, uh, uh, and then I'll have times where it's a clean out phase and the people, yeah. you know, bad over the, uh, the holiday period or whatever. Okay, it's time for a bit of a reset. A, a reset. Uh, in it. Not, I don't like the word detox because that has so many wrong connotations nowadays, although, you know, it is part of the thing. And then, and then growth again, and, mm. and then cycling in and out of the body likes it does. Like, it likes to be just like with your sport. I used to do before I met Neil, my my coach, <laughs> back in the day when I had no idea of anything. I'd just get out of the door and I'd run for hours every day, and that's all I did. I didn't do any, yep. I didn't do any, and I had the same thing every day in day out. And then I wondered, why am I not getting fitter? I didn't understand back then that just doing the same old, same old things is not causing a, you know, a stimulus to the body anymore. And in fact, I'm wearing it down. You yeah, know, totally. I'm unfitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I agree with you. I think your body likes flux. Like it likes, like if we think about energy expenditure and energy input, if you've got a high energy expenditure, it likes a high energy input to keep those sort of, all of those metabolic pathways nourished, if you like. But then you move into a phase of low energy output and low energy intake and again your body quite likes that too and it's sort of you know it's good to give your gut a bit of a rest it's good to just give your body a bit of a rest and it can and it's that whole rest recovery phase isn't it just interrupting the program briefly to let you know that we have a new patron program for the podcast now if you enjoy pushing the limits if you get great value out of it we would love you to come and join our patron membership program we've been doing this now for five and a half years and we need your help to keep it on air it's been a public service free for everybody and we want to keep it that way but to do that we need like-minded souls who are on this mission with us to help us out so if you're interested in becoming a patron for Pushing the Limits podcast, then check out 
everything on patron.lisatarmaty.com. That's P-A-T-R-O-N dot lisatarmaty.com. We have two patron levels to choose from. You can do it for as little as $7 a month, New Zealand, or $15 a month if you really want to support us. So, we, we are grateful if you do. There are so many membership benefits you're going to get if you join us. Everything from workbooks for all the podcasts, the strength guide for runners, uh, the power to vote on future episodes, uh, webinars that we're going to be holding, all of my documentaries and much, much more. So check out all the details, patron.lisatarmaty.com and thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, I love that. And, uh, you know, that's why I like, and I quite like for for the general public, I think the intermittent fasting approach is an easy one to adapt. Yeah. You know, even if it's just just waiting till 11 o'clock in the morning before you have your breakfast or something, just giving your body that uh, couple more hours of yeah. time without food. So that's more beneficial. Would you agree with this? Um, it's been more beneficial to say, you know, stop eating at 7 o'clock at night, don't eat until 11, 12 o'clock the next day, rather than eating at 7 and then missing lunch. In the yeah, evening. yeah. Because you're not getting that actual total digestive rest, if you like. Yeah, yeah, totally. So from a protein, um, mus- from a muscle protein synthesis, we need sort of two to three and probably like the research is sort of geared more towards two but uh, uh, and this is not my research this is research of of uh professor don layman and professor stuart phillips uh who i've interviewed on my podcast Wikipedia, and they've talked about the idea that you know two to three sort of solid inputs of protein to help stimulate muscle protein synthesis a day and for people who are younger so we know that teenagers and early 20s they sort of get away with 15 to 20 grams of protein in order to uh, maximize that uh, muscle protein synthesis but people who are older sort of above 40 45 50 we might need closer to 40 grams of protein in order to get enough leucine which is the amino acid responsible for to signal muscle protein synthesis in order for our brain to sort of read that signal. And so this is one of the reasons why I'm just not a fan of people over, you know, older people, older people, people like us, you know, over our forties of doing these really extended, like one meal a day, fasting for 20 hours, that kind of thing, because there's just too much risk that you actually then just accelerate that muscle breakdown and bone health. So we know that as we age, one of the biggest causes of early mortality in an older population is falls because they are unable to sort of, you know, when you and I might trip up, we might not actually trip up and fall over. Our body and our muscles are strong enough in and around our sort of feet and angles to be able to correct that. So our muscles are functioning properly. It doesn't happen, you know, that stuff declines as you age. So you need to make sure that you've got a good not only pro- i mean protein is obviously important but resistance training and yeah. and functional yeah. functional yeah. training and mobility and stuff like that this is stuff that we need to hook into now and do for the rest of our lives exactly you're singing from my song sheet here mm. i'm very very passionate about so for me my my daily routine will look like i'm you know or, or the weekly sort of thing is i'm doing high intensity I'm doing yep. weight training where I'm actually building muscle and I'm doing yoga and that all and I'm doing running as well, the cardio as well. All of these have uh, an important role to play in my anti-aging strategy. 
Yeah. Like, I, like, like having been through this rehabilitation with mum from her aneurysm and she was unable to do anything for 18 months basically in a wheelchair, um, the, getting that back to be able to just sit on the floor for five minutes. Yeah, amazing. Being able to like sit on your, you know, on your feet when you're with your knees bent or think all those sort of tribal poses, I call them. Um, yeah. She can't do any of those. Mm. And it, it is so debilitating. And therefore her balance as well, you know, with the brain injuries on yes. top of it is, is poor. So the biggest risk factor besides the cancer for her is falls. Yeah, totally. Luckily, she's been genetically gifted in that in that realm because she's got very good, strong bone structure. Amazing. Uh, I have a very delicate bone structure, much more delicate bone structure. So I, I, as I'm getting older, it's really important for me and for you, I imagine, too, to keep our muscle mass. Absolutely. Keep our bones strong. So my vitamin D and my K2 and things like that as well in the mix. Yeah. Uh, keeping my protein and my albumin levels up. I'm really yeah. quite a, a fan of keeping albumin levels up, and that's not an easy thing to do necessarily. Yeah, albumin yeah. Is one of your liver um, transporter proteins, if you yeah. like. Yeah. And, and it, it um, so I have things like egg whites, protein, yeah. you know, and things like that um, to try to keep those levels up. Nice. So, Same. So important. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing around bone health, so um, a couple of things which are detrimental to bone health is exercising and then not getting in nutrients after exercise. As far as we understand, these are the, the acute bone markers for bone breakdown are higher and our sort of bone building markers are lower when you exercise and then go for a period of time without eating before getting in your nutrients. And this is particularly for people who follow a lower carb approach. But again, these are just acute markers. We don't know really what this means in the long term, but this is as far as the research has sort of got us. So that sort of gears my uh, recommendations to the athletes that I work with who predominantly have a lower carb approach. And I'm not saying it's low carb, but my carb intake is mainly from vegetables and fruit, maybe a piece of toast. I'm actually on a bit of a toast thing right now. I have a piece of toast in my days. But um, not a nutritionist. <laughs> I know, I know, right. <laughs> and, a, and a toast um, and uh, so my carb intake would probably fall between I think a low carb day for me might be about one 100 maybe and in fact a higher carb day is, is is maybe double that even maybe a little bit more depends on what that day looks like and like how long my training was and, and things like that but if you you are an athlete who has a lower carb approach and, and has appropriate carbohydrate as actually most endurance athletes should and not necessarily a high carb that potentially increases that risk of that bone marker breakdown so I just try and say to people look after exercise um, and this is particularly if you're in a calorie deficit also uh, make sure you, you're timing your nutrition to have pretty much as soon as you're done don't jump in the shower make yourself a coffee drive to work go into a meeting and avoid eating because that's actually not going to be helpful for your recovery long term and the other thing which we know to be important for bone health is omega-3s like there have been studies to show that even bedridden adults uh, elderly people above 75 they're their markers of bone retention are better when they have omega-3s. And these are people who are bedridden. So they're not even doing the most important thing for their bones, which is resistance trainings. Yeah, yeah. So that would be another one. Yeah, that's that's brilliant. I, you know, 
got my mind those and, and omega threes for everything. Like oh, totally. omega threes for brain health, for your cardiovascular health, your yeah. atherosclerosis, you, you name it. It's a good thing to have. Which ones do you have, Lisa? Um, I usually have um, Ben Warren's. No, yeah. Um, it, it is really important that you get a quality one. Um, yeah. And, and which is a quality one? That's a good question. Um, I know it's, it's hard, isn't it? Because we yeah. had that research come out a few years ago to show that most yeah. omega-3s in New Zealand come from the same manufacturing plant and they were rancid. Yeah. And we have assurances now from companies that that's been resolved, but that hasn't stopped me from continuing to recommend brands like Nordic Naturals yeah. or, or Carlson's is another one where there's yeah. independent batch tested um to make sure that what they say is in the sort of capsule is um, but also that it's not not um gone not been oxidized yes exactly and it's a very important point and and on that point um you know vegetable oils like your uh your your canola oils your seed oils and things Mm. why are these bad why are they bad for us yeah, you know, it's such a good question because, you know, if I was, if you would have asked me this question maybe three or four years ago, I would have been very adamant to say, avoid these at all costs because they are pro-inflammatory and they can upregulate inflammation in the body. And what we know is that if you have difficulties resolving that inflammation, then that's going to sort of progress that, you know, that's the underlying cause of those big diseases that you mentioned maybe 20 minutes ago. Um, they're devoid of nutrients. So any nutrients in these oils, so we're talking canola oil, rice bran oil, um, uh, sunflower oil, but I'll put a caveat to that and I'll talk about that later. Um, um, you know, vegetable oil, whatever, cholesterol-free vegetable oil, which they love saying. Um, <laughs> often, so they're stripped of nutrients and some oils have heat in the processing um, uh place uh, in the processing element of them as well so they're heated and we know that heated um, oils like these uh, seed oils um, can destabilize those oils and make them become oxidized and even more dangerous to the body and even more atherogenic Um, and then they're often stored in plastic containers Um, and when you ever whenever you put fat in plastic it just means that the plasticizers from the container can seep into that food source that's why I recommend that anyone with any sort of leftovers or whatever, if it's um, Sistema that they're using, a plastic container, put down some baking paper, put something down so it sort of is a barrier between those, um, that plastic thing. Put it in glass is actually better, Um, but I don't expect someone to then now throw out all their plastic and outfit their kitchen something different. Um, And then not only so it's in a plastic container and then it's put on a supermarket shelf for however long in in bright light and daylight. So all of these factors do mean that there's just a more propensity for them to be um, uh, more atherogenic in the body. That said as well, we have to consider that these are the cheap oils that are then used in a lot of processed, in most processed foods. The biggest problem lies really, yeah. Yeah, it really is. It's in everything. And it's about three quarters of the supermarket for everybody, not to mention the E numbers and the preservatives and the stuff. Totally. The actual oils that are in you, everything. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so because of that, it like people's intake of omega-6 oils, which is what these are, and some are omega-3 
you know, have plant-based omega-3s, which is pretty rubbish, but we'll talk about, we can talk about why that is. Um, uh, they are, these are a marker really of actually processed food. So even actually by saying to someone, if you cut processed food, then without even really thinking about it, they will cut a large portion of their fat intake from these industrial seed oils. And so, so if I go back to, you know, my stance a few years ago and why it's changed is that actually on basis, if you look at literature, it's, it's equivocal as to the impact that these seed oils have on health. But, but as a clinician, I just know that if you're having a lot of seed oils, then you're probably already having, also having a lot of sugar. You're also having a lot of um, processed refined carbohydrate, all of the things we know to be problematic. So I say, don't eat that stuff. But also, you know, if you're having a hummus, for example, that might have like a bit of sunflower oil in it, you don't need to stay awake at night fretting about that, particularly if it's in the context of an abundance of vegetables, a good source of protein, and you're feeling satisfied and you're not overdoing it on the processed refined carbohydrate. It's a good approach, I think, Mickey. And, you know, I just wish we could educate, you know, like if we could go into our restaurants and get a salad with olive oil, cold I know. Or, or so, you know, like educate. And you go into health, you know, healthy restaurants and they're still doing it in canola oil. I'm like, haven't you heard the memo? You know, like that is the, 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 and this is, you know, right across the board. If we could educate, you know, big food, well, good luck with that one. But um, <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of things we need to change. Uh, but the way that the whole thing is marketed is being healthy. Like, like you said, you go and get a hummus. Now, hummus would be a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. If we have all the, E numbers of preservatives and the vegetable oils in it. Yeah, and and yeah. Because, like you say, you can't fret about everybody. That's the thing. It's, it's, it has to be a real balance for a lot of people, you know? And so in one thing of interest over the last few years, and I said I had a bit of a note about sunflower oil, is that you can now on the market get something called a high oleic sunflower oil. Now, oleic acid is, is one of the things which makes olive oil so healthy for you. It's a type of a monounsaturated fat that is associated with reduced cardiovascular disease risk. So that high oleic sunflower oil is actually not that bad as far as we understand it. I just don't think it is as nutritious as that extra virgin olive oil would be. So it it would be my preference to get that. But whenever we talk about food and whenever we talk about health, we have to place it in the context of someone's budget and someone's resources and what they have access to. And it is not good. And I don't think it's the right message to say to people, you need to be buying organic meat. You need to be going to your farmer's market. You need to be buying from that um, the farm gate you need to only ever get your fruit and vegetables from the um, from a fruit and veggie shop and you cannot touch anything within the aisles of the supermarket because that strips like the resources and the time and the energy and the money that it takes to be able to do that. That is a privileged thing to say. And I got into a lot of trouble on social media a few months ago when I had a post saying that free range eggs were good if you can afford them. But you know what? If you can't, just get your normal eggs. The You should have seen some of the backlash I got on that. And it showed, it just really highlighted to me how people just do not understand what how it, hard it is, for how hard it is for New Zealand is not cheap. Like, look, like, Look, food's ridiculous. Food, petrol, the living costs. Oh. And it's not as easy. To, it's not easy 
it's not as easy for some people um, to just up sticks from Auckland and move to regional New Zealand. Like the jobs aren't there for people to do that. Like I don't, I don't know. I have a real um, bee in my bonnet about the sort of the privilege that some people have by saying, how dare you say that people should eat eggs that aren't free range? You know, they have no idea. And they're, they're not even aware that they don't have any idea. They just look at me and go, oh, my God, animal killer. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and and I, I agree, you know, we do. And, I, you know, when I'm dealing with a client, yeah, I want them to have the perfect, perfect. But I know that that's. What what's important for me is that I'm moving them in the right direction, giving them the tools to make their own decisions, and yeah. giving them the the best that you can. And if I if I can get them to buy certain things or uh, get certain supplements or whatever the case may be, then that's great. But you have to have within within people's means both both. This is where I struggle with ones who um, just don't want to put the effort in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> at all into their yeah. health at all just give me the answer and it doesn't work like that so I get a lot of people coming because you know like people with um, strokes and things like that and okay the stroke victim is not the person here but if I'm dealing with a loved one and they're like but oh, but you fixed your mum how did you do it what what what's the pill basically I'm sorry there is no one single pill oh. and it's we're talking is it can I can I can I can I uh, is this person savable? Is this person, can I help this person? Yes. Are you willing to? That's another big question because yeah. um, there is the cost thing mm. and can you? And then there is, the, are you willing to sacrifice yeah. a massive amount of your time, energy, life yeah. for that person? And that's a hard thing to say, but that's the truth. Yeah. Um, you know, like mum would not be here if I hadn't, and we as a family hadn't sacrificed one hell of a lot to get her back and on a day-to-day basis ongoing, you know. And, and know, that's, a- that's what you do for your loved ones. So for me, it's important to get the people to understand this is a journey. There are no guarantees. Mm. You can do everything and they can still not come back. Yeah. But this is a chance that you have that you otherwise wouldn't have. Yeah, somebody who's you know really loves somebody that they that they're losing or someone's in trouble, then this is a path forward. And I would have given everything to have that path laid out for me. Yeah. And, you know, I, I sometimes get people coming to me. What can you do for me? And I'm like, I can't do anything for you. Yeah, you have to do it for yourself. yourself. Or yeah. you have to do it for your loved one, and you have to do it day in day out. Yeah, you know, religiously. You know, yeah. it's, it's such a mindset it. thing, isn't it? Like. And it's how much do you want it? Yes. I don't know, Lisa, what you described you did with your mum and now with her cancer journey is just out of this world, actually. Like, I just can't believe the what you've and how amazing, like, what an amazing outcome to then also now be going through this yet seeing success that you have resilience so much resiliency in your family like there must be some gene you've got that (laughs) far out like for me this is just like it's not it's like um every day I have my dramas every day I you know like I'm struggling I'm crying I'm falling down I'm like can I get up the next day and go again you know that's not that you don't have those Mm. do uh, but 
do you, when you think, or I keep the one vision in my head always, you know, the one big goal. And this is where ultramarathon running was such a beneficial lesson to learn over and over again, is you've got this one goal. You've yeah. got one thing that you're aiming for, the finish line, right? You've got yeah. to get to that finish line and everything is aimed towards that one point. And with mum, when she was like a baby, everything in my life was aimed towards that one point, sometimes to the detriment of my husband and my job and my career and my clients and my everything was subjective, subjective mm. or lower priority to that one goal. And that's what it requires to do the pretty much impossible. Um which yeah. is why you were so successful at your sport. And I see this with athletes. You know, people talk about balance. You can't be balanced if you're going to be a successful athlete. That's actually just not possible. And I see this as well. In, and you don't have to be elite to experience this as well because I have a lot of age groupers who take their sport just as seriously, but they're doing it trying to balance that work, family, life. And often there are people who are sort of at the top of their industry because they've sort of they've, they've reached their professional goals at this point in their life and now they're wanting to now go on and, and sort of experience something else and so they take on board endurance sport you know but it's the, like you it's a certain type of personality that give, that makes someone successful and, I mean you've got it in droves I mean I don't need to tell you that but you see it a lot and it's hard to be balanced and balance actually, if you are balanced, then that success isn't going to be there really for you. Yeah. yeah, I, think I see it. Yeah. I think what you can do as you get older is learn to have um, strategies to mitigate the downside of your personality, you know, mm. having that over dopamine, you know, brain, like yeah. my brain is, and I know from my genetics that I have a, you know, a lack of dopamine. So I'm always going to be goal and oriented driven. Yeah. And understanding that different people tick differently. So when yep. you study genetics, you know, like you you understand that that person over there, say, um, mum, for example, is a is full of prolactin. That's a dominant hormone in your body that makes you nurturing, caring, loving, but not ambitious and yep. totally goal driven like me. Whereas you, you with me, I have too much adrenaline and not enough dopamine. That makes me very sometimes short sometimes very action-orientated without thinking, um, not the greatest planner, not the greatest strategist, but just go, go, go. Yeah. Um, so you start to understand that and then you can sort of nuance that because you can, you can tell when you're starting to spin out of control. Yeah. You can tell when you need to go for a walk and step away or you can tell when you're being an asshole. Um, and you have to take a breath and yeah. uh, come back and apologize to your husband or whatever your case may be. Um, yeah, yeah. Start to realize, yeah, I, I, okay, that's a chemical in my head doing this right now. And I've got to go and step away from what I, whatever it is that I'm doing and going, go for a bit of a run or go, you know, whatever it is I need to, to balance myself out. Then I can come back and be much more effective. So I think you can still be more, you can learn to be more effective and uh, a nicer person. <laughs> um, but sometimes there is this whole, you know, you, you are fighting your chemistry, your, your genetic chemistry as well. Yeah. And you got to know yourself as well. Like I wonder that, you know, there are so many different tests that people can get to sort of determine, you know, what is it that my ge genetic pathways look like? What about, um, you know, what do my blood tests say? How do I metabolize nutrients through organic acids? And these things are super interesting, but I also feel like just having that knowledge about yourself plays a large part in that. So even without that background information, I think if people are a little bit more self-aware, then they're going to know that they're an asshole, not necessarily know 
the reason for it, but also have that similar sort of action. <laughs> they, they've sort of similar solutions to the problems, I know. Yeah, yeah, I think that's gold. And uh, it's so, you were saying before, I love, we love science. I love the stuff that's coming out. I love the, the fact that we can actually, you know, have all this new information and layer it into our lives to make our lives more fulfilling, better, and, you know, we achieve our goals better, hopefully, and we live longer and healthier lives, which is the goal that we both have, you know. Absolutely. Through that. Just, just on the, um, the COVID situation, the vaccine, mm. um, what, what's your take on what's going on and, you know, what you're willing to share publicly because it's a, a, a political hot potato, but, um, you know, what's your approach to, to optimising your health in this time of really high stress and so on? With the- yeah, and I think, do you know, it's, it's such a divisive time right now and even, and not necessarily in our own circles, although it might well be, and I know it is for some people, but even just sort of just out there in the community, what you see on social media, what you see in the media and, and things like that. And what's been remarkable for me, Lisa, is that there's been absolutely no discussion about health. And then when people like me put up posts about health, we're labelled anti-vaxxers or supporting a big movement or a big um, push against vaccinations and and things like that so it almost feels like people are trying to approach this as a black and white you know you're either this or that and if you're yeah there's no nuance at all and then if you have any questions about what's happening out there at that policy level um then you are not playing your part in this team of five million i i hate the rhetoric around um new zealand is the best you know we're world leading we're number one you know you need to do this so we aren't you know we're beating every other country i don't care about that like it's never been maybe it's my lack of competitive spirit and actually because i am not wholly competitive in that nature um so that kind of language and narrative really turns me off actually um and i really hate vaccine mandates like i really do like there's you know and look i'm no expert in this space I listen to people who are experts, but it's a very opinion-driven place as well. And recognising what is fact and what is opinion, I feel that people don't get a really good grounding of that. And so I highly recommend people go and check out Peter Atiyah in his podcast, The Drive. And they talk a lot about the difference between science and advocacy and how advocacy has played a role in some of the policies, at least overseas, that have been put into place to the detriment of science and not actually listening to the science and I think that's a really interesting point Um, I don't think it's healthy at all for us to have vaccine mandates actually for to create division in society particularly in the state of where we're at now and I know that will not go down well with a lot of people that I just said that Um, I totally agree I think anything that is divisive when we've spent decades getting you know getting rid of racism and sexism and every ism, and then we go and do this, and you, you, the the whole rhetoric about, but it's but it's for the good of the nation. No, it isn't for the good of the nation. That's your opinion mm-hmm. that it's the good of the nation. If you look at the science, it's very divided. Yeah, it appears to be. It's in, The whole transmission piece I found really interesting, and I was blown away actually when I saw the data on it, that in fact being vaccinated doesn't really protect your family and whanau, as we've heard in the media, though we're getting vaccinated for New Zealand, but actually doesn't see, appear to make a difference. And again, I implore people um, not to come at me 
if they disagree, and it's fine for you to disagree, um, but check out what the science actually does say. And, and again, check out Peter Atia, and he has a really good analysis of David why. Asprey and yeah, and Peter McCulloch and Dr. Ian Yearden. Uh, there's just there's just thousands of scientists that are coming out with different things, and I think it's just you know what is is, is super important, and we might not agree on everything, but we mm. can get open intellectual open discussion and look at the science without any emotion in it yeah totally and and propaganda bullshit where it's emotional blackmail yeah and it's you know and from for a more sort of local flavor um professor grant schofield you've had on your podcast he's chatting to me on my podcast um in a couple of days he wrote a brilliant piece on um covid and your opinion matters all about vaccine mandates and if i just touch on the health thing again like it is quite clear that the healthier you are the more resilient you are and the whole thing around vitamin d has been that vitamin d is important for immune resiliency for um your ability and when you do get if you do get vaccinated for your ability to um, respond favorably to the vaccine and actually for the vaccine to be effective you need a good vitamin d status you know you need to have all of these things sort of in place and yet there's been nothing like that has come from policy there's been no talk about health at all and that is just mind-blowing to me over this last two years and like i say like i talk about health and people come at me like health is a privilege so you shouldn't talk about health because it's talking to the privileged and i'm like yeah, that's a super interesting opinion, which I hadn't thought of before. Um, but I don't also think that if you don't talk about health, then how on earth is anyone going to know, you know, like privileged or not? This is not privilege. This is what we're all aiming towards. And none of us yeah. are 100% there. We've all got our issues. Yeah. But we're aiming towards how do we optimize this body suit that we were given? Yeah, we're on this earth for so that it lasts as long as possible mm-hmm. and not disabled for for a couple of decades before we die. You yeah. know, and those things are really important to talk about because yeah. we have so much science and information now that we can optimize. Yeah, and look, nothing's a given either. You know, like it's what the talk that I'm hearing. I'm sure loads of people are hearing is that Omicron will sweep through, and that's what we need. And that's this is sort of the start of the end is the most hopeful of of what we're hearing. And New Zealand isn't yet there yet. But um, what I do find super interesting, actually, is that um, and again, if I reference Peter Atia, because he was he, he talked about it on social media, is that there are a lot of protocols that could be used to treat COVID when you get it. Instead, we're told to stock up on Panadol, go home and isolate for 24 days. Yeah. So there's no talk. On the, yeah. It's the early intervention piece that is really missing, and we know it now. At the beginning of the pandemic, they didn't know, but now there is no excuse. The protocols are all out there. I have my... My cupboard is ready to go. I know yeah. exactly what I would do if it, if, if it comes and I know have my plan of attack in place just like I would for an earthquake or anything else. Yeah, interesting. Right? And we, yeah. those early interventions are really, really important, not just yeah. when someone's blue in the face and now is dying and they're, you know, got... And then nothing's going to save them then, is no, it? And then, no. then if a study is published on people who are at that stage and there's no, um, right. you know, no improvement... It's a bit late. Exactly. It's too yeah. late, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, oh, it just makes absolute no sense. And you have to, understand, have to ask yourself, why? Why? 
Mm. Uh, what are the what is actually behind this, and that goes beyond today's discussion, probably. No, I agree, and I find it interesting. I saw something in the paper the other day, and I hate that I read the Herald, but I do because it's you know it's there. Um, talking about um, that the government is having a rethink on masks, and I think that's important too because a lot of the masks that we've been told to to wear are like completely ineffective, you know, and. And, you know, children wearing masks, like losing that social sort of connection between like you being able to read facial expressions, being afraid of unmasked faces, just being afraid of people in general. There have been studies to show that there's cognitive detriment to children sort of coming through school since the, the pandemic. And it's not just because homeschooling sucks. Like there's a whole host of reasons for why that might be might be the case and I just I really worry actually about how this is all going to play out over the next few years and it makes me a bit sad I think our our children are going to be the brunt of this and our young people and I think um you know we we, Professor Schofield who you know that that um article he wrote um about the the, why are we not hearing from anybody but the two epidemiologists who have got the loudest mouths and the only ones speaking what about the professors of the different, you know, areas that are affected, yeah. the mental health, what's the psychological, what's the social impact, what is the yeah. business impact, well, what is all of these impacts should be joining in in this conversation and it should be a, a holistic approach to this yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, not a one, oh, no, only the epidemiologists know what's going on and that's it. I know. It isn't, you know. No, and how does an epidemiologist – how is one epidemiologist who spent, you know, 20 years telling us we needed to eat margarine, now he's the COVID yeah. expert? Oh, my God. But no, better not mention any names. But, uh, <laughs> really? You're going to take your advice from that person? <laughs> I know. And we shouldn't. Like, it's, it's a challenging time, you know. But what about the virologists in the in the, in the immunologists and, and all the other people who are involved, I know. Look, but I do not, um, you know, it's what a bloody tough job that I understand. And like, I don't know the ins and outs of things in government. I know no clue about stuff like that. And I do not, um, uh, I, I do not wish to be, you know, I couldn't wish to be that person. <laughs> to be that person making those rules, you know, because you do, you have the interests of pharma, you've got the interests of big food, you've got the, you've got all the political, economic interests, and then you've got health. And look, who know? I don't know what that right mix is. All I know is that um, right now it just feels very divided in New Zealand. And I'm just really looking forward to how this is, how, the, the end of it, if there is an end of it. What, if, you know, what even end, is that? I hope there is an end before yeah. something else comes out. I don't know. But, hey, bloody lucky to be healthy. Really lucky to um, be able to travel around the little part of New Zealand that we are and explore beautiful outdoors to have to be able to connect with friends and, and loved ones again. So, in that respect, you know, I've got very little to complain about. Any complaint um, feels a bit selfish, but I really feel for everyone else out there, people who are, who are unable to be vaccinated or choose not to be vaccinated. I really feel for them and the challenging place in society is yeah. for them right now, to be fair. Yeah, and that one point that you said, those who are unable to be vaccinated, this is where, you know, like someone like my mum who has cancer, yeah, going through chemo uh, is, you know, there is no nuance to the policy. There is mm. no, okay, this person probably shouldn't have it. That one yeah. probably should have it. That one, there's just 
one size fits all. And in an age where we have personalization in health now, we understand the differences between a, 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 a you know, 40 kilo Asian woman and a 250 kilo Maori man may be completely different. Yeah. You know, there's none of that. There's no mm. age things. There's nothing. There's no. none of that. So one size fits all because it fits nice and cleanly into the policy. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Yeah. And and again, the whole vaccinating children thing is super interesting. And I will refer back to Peter Atia. Listen to that podcast. Get some insight. I haven't listened to him for a while, but he's brilliant. He is brilliant. And for anyone who hasn't actually, you know, listened to any any of his work, he's very pro vaccination. He's very towing. He's he is a very, he's definitely conventional in terms of a lot of his approaches. He is in the, in the longevity space. He's a critical thinker as well, and it seems like he's been critically thinking about this issue over the last few months and his podcasts reflect yep. that. And I would add to that, Dave Asprey, listen to him, Peter, um, Dr. D- uh, McCulloch, Peter McCulloch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Dr. Merkula. Um, you know, there's just a whole lot of things. Go and get you know information from lots of good people and then mm. make your own decisions, you know. Make totally. From that, but make sure you're getting a balanced. Totally, Lisa. Nikki, uh, where can people find you? How do people work with you? What are your links in your podcast? Because we want to promote your podcast. Awesome. So people can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, website mickeywillardin.com, podcast, Wikipedia. And um, you can find those links all on my um, in my Instagram bio and, and things like that as well. And people can work with me one on one. They can sign up to any number of my online subscription programs. And I successfully launched like a, um, a fat loss program last year, a group program. And it's in its fourth iteration and yeah. it's going great guns and it's based on protein sparing modified fast. And it brings in all the latest sort of information in and around how to successfully improve body composition without starving yourself um and i love it it's so great we're in there we're a group we're all in it together um and it's it's uh awesome to see people put the mahi in and get the results oh that's just marvelous and and you know you're a great colleague to have in this space and you know i think it's just fantastic so i'll put all those links in the show notes lovely thank you lisa thank you very much for your time today mickey and we'll talk to you again soon no doubt it's an honor to be on so thanks so much That's it this week for Pushing the Limits. Be sure to rate, review and share with your friends and head over and visit Lisa and her team at lisatarmaty.com.